Well, please keep your Bible open there at Revelation chapter 12 as we come to study this passage this evening. And uh, simply uh, taking as our theme the, the three main characters that we read about in this passage. The woman, the dragon and the child. The woman, the dragon and the child. Like so much of Revelation, there is every possibility that when you first heard these words read tonight, you were thinking... What is going on? What is the point of all of this? What is this very strange sounding story all about? Well, part of me is hoping that maybe you didn't think that. I'm hoping that since we're now at the halfway point of Revelation, you might be uh, beginning to crack the code and, and get a pretty good idea of what some of these pictures and numbers might mean, even if perhaps we don't know all the details of them until we study them further. But once again, friends, this passage, like the rest of Revelation, It's not here to be a nuisance. It's not here to be a puzzle that hardly anybody can solve. It's here for our encouragement. And it is here for our reassurance if we are followers of Jesus Christ. It's further reassurance for us that Christ is victorious. That we are victorious in him. And that our great enemy, the devil, is defeated. That's ultimately the message of this chapter. Christ is victorious We are victorious in him, and our great enemy, the devil, is defeated. And Revelation 12 teaches us that lesson through the story of the woman, the dragon, and the child. And what these three characters represent, quite simply, is God's plans for his church, for the devil, and for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, this is which you might say this is the true story behind every good story that we love. Someone in trouble, threatened by a dangerous enemy, a hero born with a sense of purpose surrounding them that they must grow up and defeat this enemy and put right what has gone wrong in their world. And indeed, some of our favorite stories, in, in, in some of our favorite stories rather, that enemy is a dragon-like or a serpent-like creature. But Revelation 12 gives us the original true version of the story. And again, it does so to reassure us and encourage us, the people of God, as we wait for and hasten the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, I hope my approach this evening won't be uh, too hard to follow. Rather than going verse by verse through the passage, I'm going to focus on each of these three main characters in turn, the woman, the dragon, and the child. And so we, we will be jumping about a bit in the chapter. So again, please do have it open before you. Uh, but I think it's best for us to understand uh, what, we're do, what we're to learn about each of these three, that we just focus on each of them in turn. And so first of all, let's think tonight about the woman who represents God's plans for the church. God's plans for the church. Once again, we interpret the visions of Revelation symbolically. And in chapter 12, I believe that the best uh, interpretation of this woman is that she symbolizes the church. She symbolizes the church. Uh, And she symbolizes the church in different ages, uh, as as we'll see as we go through it. But notice how she's described in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, if you're really switched on, you, you might remember how Joseph 
how Joseph described his dream to his brothers and his father's or his father back in Genesis 37 verse 9. Remember Joseph had these dreams. He said, "Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me." And Joseph's father Jacob wasn't too happy about this dream because he understood it to mean that he was the sun, his wife was the moon, and his other sons were the stars and that they would bow down to Joseph. And Jacob, of course, was that man that God renamed Israel. He was the patriarch of the original 12 tribes of Israel, which made up the visible church in the Old Testament era. And so add Joseph on to the other 11 stars. You get 12 stars, just as there are 12 stars here on the crown that this woman is wearing in verse 1. And this picture of Israel, the people of God, friends, as stars or as bright shining figures, that's a theme that you can see all through the Old Testament. Uh, You remember, for example, God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 5, look at the stars in the sky and I will make your descendants even more numerous than those stars. Remember too how Jesus described the church back in Revelation chapter 1, the seven stars The seven lampstands, this was a picture of the church shining in the universe. And so I believe we're best to understand this woman shining like the sun, surrounded by the 12 stars, the moon under her feet, as a picture of the church. The church, as far as God in heaven is concerned, is covered in the bright glory of Jesus Christ. The church If not now, then certainly in eternity will shine brighter than the sun because of the righteousness of Christ covering us. The church has authority and will have authority over this world. That's why the the moon is under the woman's feet. And the church, though one body, is scattered around the world today like shining stars. Now what happens to this woman Well, verse 2 tells us she's in labour. She's about to give birth. Verse 5, she does give birth, notice, to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, quite obviously, that male child is the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll consider more later. Uh, But just notice at this point what, what we're learning about him here. That the Lord Jesus Christ not only came for the church, that is, to save the church through his death on the cross, But he came from the church. Jesus was born into the nation of Israel, the visible church of the Old Testament era. And the arrival of Israel's saviour, her Messiah, was something that Israel had longed for. At least the faithful, the true believers of Israel had longed for that coming of the Messiah all through the Old Testament era. That's why this woman, when we first see her, is described as being in labour, longing for her suffering to end and for the reward of that suffering, for her Messiah to come. Again, this is a picture. It's not new to the Bible in Revelation. The Old Testament prophets often describe the people of Israel as going through the birth pangs, waiting for God's deliverance. Isaiah 26 verse 17, for example Uh, Isaiah says, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. But we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. 
In the days of Isaiah, they were still waiting for their deliverance. But here in Revelation 12, we're told about when it was that the deliverance came. A son was born. And in verse 5, this son is caught up to God and to his throne again. We'll think more about that later. While the woman, verse 6, fled into the wilderness with this dragon pursuing her. Where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And the woman ending up in the wilderness, that, that point is repeated to us there in verse 14. If you cast your eye down to verse 14. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times and half a time. And so verses 6 and 14, friends, are telling us about the same thing. They're telling us about God's people, the church, between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Where we are and what will happen to us. Until Jesus comes again, friends, the church is in a spiritual wilderness. We're in this wicked world full of strife, suffering, temptation and sin and again this is an old testament picture you think of the exodus the wilderness years think of elijah the three and a half years that he spent in the wilderness during the drought and famine but for us just as in those eras false teachers are in this wilderness who could lead you in the wrong direction just as there were false teachers in the days of moses you remember the the faithless spies And false teachers certainly in the days of Elijah. There are persecutors in this wilderness. Just as Israel faced the threat of the Egyptians behind them at the Red Sea. And the Moabites and Ammonites and other enemies in the wilderness years. There are those today who would attack and abuse and persecute the church. And there is the dragon hot on our heels. But despite all of these dangers, friends, notice the word that's used in both verse 6 and verse 14. She is to be nourished. And she is in a place, notice uh, verse 6, this is a place prepared by God. A place prepared by God where she will be nourished. As challenging as the wilderness was for Moses and the Israelites, God was with them. In the wilderness, in the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. And he protected them from all those enemies that came against them. And he nourished them in the wilderness. He fed them with the manna falling from heaven every morning for 40 years. The water gushing from the rock. (coughs) And you remember too the experience of Elijah during his three and a half years in the wilderness. The ravens feeding him, the brook Uh, quenching his thirst, God nourishing him in his appointed place. And friends, the message could not be more encouraging for us, the church today. For every day we spend in the wilderness of this world, waiting to be united to our Saviour in glory, God will nourish us. God will provide for us, just as he has always done for his people in days of wilderness wandering. And we're also reassured here that our time in the wilderness 
is not indefinite. It's not just going to go on without any end in sight. It is a fixed and limited time. That's why we're told that it's for 1,260 days. We've seen that number before. Revelation 11 verse 3. Uh, said, Revelation 11 3 said that God's two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. And if you remember I suggested to you again the interpretation that the two witnesses are also a picture of the church. And the number appears again in a slightly different way uh, in chapter 12 verse 14. Again if you look at verse 14. Uh, she's to be nourished for time, times and half a time. Now, if you assume that a time is one year, then times, times, and half a time is three and a half years, which is 1,260 days. It's the amount of time that Elijah literally spent uh, nourished by God in the wilderness. And it's a symbolic way of saying, friends, that the time between the first and second comings of Jesus is a fixed time. It's a limited time. The Father in heaven knows the day and the hour when that time will come to an end and our time in the wilderness will be over. And until then, God will nourish us. Our shepherd will lead us in paths of righteousness. He will give rest to our weary souls. He will provide for all that we need. As Psalm 91 tells us over and over again. Is that not such a comfort for you this evening, Christian? As you perhaps seek to shepherd the little flock of children in your home, as you go out to do the daily work that God has called you to do, as perhaps in old age you seek to continue to be faithful and and finish well, as we meet together for prayer and Bible study as a church family or as we seek to witness to our neighbours, We urge our government and our nation to repent in these days. Friends, in the midst of all of those things, God will nourish us and he will provide for us. And though we are in a wilderness, we are not alone in this wilderness. As our nation watches 10 Downing Street become a revolving door of disappointments, as we look at the dreadful spiritual apathy and darkness that is gripping our nation, we need not fear Because God has us in the place that he has prepared for us and he will nourish us. Just as he has always nourished his people in the past. He caused the manna to fall from heaven. He caused the ravens to come to Elijah. And he has sent Jesus down to us who said, I am the bread of life. That's how God nourishes us today, friends. Walk with Christ in the wilderness. Feed upon his word in the wilderness. Gather together with other believers in the wilderness. Eat up his commandments and let them be sweet to your taste. And you will have sufficient strength to keep on going until we finally see our King, our Shepherd, our Saviour, face to face. So the woman symbolises God's plans for the church. But then we think secondly this evening about the dragon or the serpent and you'll notice that those two words are used interchangeably of the same person in Revelation 12, uh, the dragon. And the dragon, friends, tells us about God's plans for the devil. God's plans for the devil. 
And what Revelation shows us about the devil is that he is a rebel, an accuser, and ultimately a loser. He is a rebel, an accuser, and ultimately a loser. Look at verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Uh, All those figures there, the the number seven, the number ten, the heads, that all emphasizes to us that the devil does have a fixed measure of authority, that he has, in fact, uh, authority throughout this earth. It's not that he has ultimate authority, of course. He's still under the ultimate authority of God. But he does have a fixed and real and powerful authority in this world. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. But we're told quite explicitly in verse 9 that this dragon is a picture of Satan. Verse 9, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Notice verse 4 says that the tail of the dragon, the tail of the dragon swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And so once again, as we've been told before in Revelation and we're told elsewhere in Scripture, Uh, This is a a brief account of what happened when the devil first rebelled against God in heaven. Uh, As we mentioned in previous weeks, the devil is a fallen angel. He was amongst the angels created in heaven. He rebelled against the authority of God, tried to take God's place for himself. And he and the, the other angels that joined with him were cast out of heaven. And so there's Satan, the rebel, trying to take the place of God. Then we also have Satan the accuser. Satan the accuser. And this is the main point of verses 7 to 12. And we need to understand that verses 7 to 12 cover the same period of time really as verses 1 to 6. It's just that it tells us about the events in heaven during this time rather than events on earth. And so verses 1 to 6 told us about the woman's child being born and escaping from the devil and ascending into heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And verses 7 to 12 give us those events from heaven's perspective. We're told in verses 7 to 8 that there was war between Satan and his angels and Michael the archangel leading the angels of God against him. And so once again, having rebelled against God in eternity past, before the the fall of of mankind, Satan again mounts an assault, if you like, or tries to rival the authority of God in heaven. And once again, verse 9, Satan is defeated. And, And verse 10 then gives us the reason for his defeat. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him, verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. So what is it that stops this second uh, assault of Satan in heaven and its tracks, friends? It is the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And what we need to understand here is that we're being told what Satan was doing for thousands of years Until the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. He was accusing the brothers. He was accusing believers. Again verse 10. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. 
who accuses them day and night before our God. This is what Satan was doing for thousands of years. He was, if you like, outside the gates of heaven, protesting, accusing God of not being a just God and accusing believers of having no right to be in heaven with God. Think of the story of Job, for example. Job chapters 1 and 2. We read there in that book that Satan had some opportunity to come before God in the spiritual realm. And he accuses God and he accuses Job. Job chapter 1 verse 9. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And so Satan there is accusing God and accusing Job. He's saying, God, you've made it easy for Job. You've given him all these comforts. You've taken all problems away from him. If you were to curse Job, if you were to remove all Job's comforts, he would curse you and he would uh, abandon his faith. And you see, friends, this is what Satan was doing For thousands of years. Satan was watching as Moses and Joshua and Ruth and David and Esther and all the Old Testament saints. They died and their souls arrived in heaven. And Satan in the spiritual realm was shouting at God saying, what are they doing there? What kind of God are you to allow these sinners into heaven with you? How do you justify them being with you in heaven? Now, I don't think David and Moses and all the other saints were having to listen to that day in and day out in heaven. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if you had to listen to that. But in some sphere, friends, in, in, some, in some way in the spiritual realm, Satan was bringing these accusations to God. But one Friday afternoon, as the blood of the Lamb was shed at Calvary's cross, and 40 days later, when that child of the woman ascended into heaven... Satan's accusations came to an end. When Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of his father, God said to Satan, here is how I've justified them. Here is the justification that Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David and all the rest were looking forward to and believing in. Here's the blood that justifies the Old Testament saints. Here's the blood that will justify all the saints in the future. Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, friends, has left Satan with no grounds for protesting outside heaven's gates any longer. Because Christ is there. The blood of the Lamb has conquered the accusations of Satan. It's amazing in God's providence, if you have your bulletin, you can notice... The question and answer of our larger catechism today. How does Christ make intercession? Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on the earth. Declaring his will to have it applied to all believers. Notice, answering all accusations against them. And procuring for them quiet of conscience and so on. Jesus sitting in heaven brings an end to all the accusations that Satan was hurling up to heaven. And so again, 
as he was cast out at the beginning at his first rebellion, Satan is cast out again, no longer able to throw accusations up to heaven's throne. But notice where he is now, verse 12. Heaven rejoices, verse 12, because he is no longer accusing. But woe to you, verse 12, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There's this warning cry from heaven to earth. The accuser is now on the earth. Satan now is coming after the church. Verse 13 says, The dragon pursued the woman who had given birth to the child. Verse 15 says that he pours out water from his mouth in an attempt to wash the woman away, to destroy her completely. And again, friends, remember how Satan lured Eve into sin in the garden. It was with his mouth. It was with the flood of lies that came out of his mouth. But verse 16 says that once again the woman is protected. God intervenes and the the flood of deception and accusation from the serpent can't destroy the woman. And so the dragon is left in a fury. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Verse 17 brings us right up to the present day, friends. The devil, enraged, furious, hating the church of Jesus Christ, those who remain faithful to him. And sometimes, isn't it true, the devil does seem to be really going for our jugular. He comes accusing you of all kinds of things. He can't do it in heaven, so he comes down and He does it here amongst us on the earth. If you were really a Christian parent, you wouldn't even have to deal with this problem your children are having. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have committed that sin again and again. That person in church who said those words to you today, uh, they didn't make an honest mistake. It's not that they were innocent and didn't realize the implication their words would have upon you they were just trying to put you down they don't like you they don't respect you don't be opening your home to them or talking to them or praying for them you're pathetic you shouldn't bother praying real christians don't deal with the kinds of things you have to deal with god doesn't want to hear you come and confess that sin It's one time too many. You'll have to make up for it some other way. These are the kinds of accusations, friends, that the dragon spews out at us. He can't do it in heaven. Jesus is there, the living proof that we are justified, that God does love us and has saved us. So he comes down and he does it here on the earth instead, roaming around, hoping to wash the church away in a flood of lies and accusations. But don't listen to him. Don't fall for his nonsense. Don't believe a word he says. He's a loser. And that brings us to consider lastly, the child in chapter 12, who of course symbolizes God's plans for his son. 
God's plans for his son. And God's plans for his son and the people for whom his son came to die are that he is a rescuer, a ruler and a victor. A rescuer, a ruler and a victor. Look back with me at verse 4. Verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Friends, there's a one sentence summary of the Old Testament era right up to the birth of Jesus. The dragon waiting for the birth of the woman's child so that he can destroy it. That's the reason why Cain struck down Abel. That's why Pharaoh ordered the murder of the Hebrew baby boys. That's why Saul went after David. That's why Haman tried to kill the Jews in the days of Esther. That's why King Herod killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Friends, it was the serpent stirring up those people to try and destroy the child of the woman before he was even born. Because the serpent remembered the promise of God, Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And so Satan, the dragon, watched and waited down through the centuries, hoping to kill his nemesis before he could be killed himself. But look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. There's Psalm 2. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's interesting, the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ aren't mentioned there in verse 5. Of course, they're spoken of clearly elsewhere in Revelation. But the emphasis there in verse 5 is on the ascension of Jesus. Because the ascension of Jesus emphasizes the victory of Jesus. He's seated today. He's in heaven today. He's ruling today. The threat of the dragon is not a threat against him anymore. Satan failed. And he knew he had failed the moment Jesus let out that loud cry on the cross and gave up his spirit on Calvary. And it was confirmed then when he ascended into heaven. Jesus went up. Satan, the accuser, was thrown down. And so now the dragon takes out his anger on the only target left available to him, the church on earth. He's furious with the church. That's why house churches are raided in China. It's why Islamic extremists burn down Christian villages in Africa. It's why the rights of preachers to preach on the streets of the UK or Ireland are under threat. Because Satan is furious with the church. And he knows, he knows that he's running out of time. Verse 12, he knows that his time is short. But just look at verse 11. They, that's the people of God, have conquered him, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How do we answer those accusations that Satan brings against us? How do we do battle with him day by day as we wait for the second coming of Christ? We do it, friends, by the blood of the Lamb. When Satan comes accusing, we say to him, I believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, I am a guilty sinner by nature, but he is a great redeemer. He is a victor and in him I am more than a conqueror. Get behind me, Satan. The child of the woman has destroyed you. 
Listen to the words of Paul, Romans 8, verse 33. Well-known words, but do they not take on even more significance when we consider Revelation 12? Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Not Satan, not anyone else. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Or we could say accuse. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, Paul says anytime we would have our status questioned as Christians, whether Satan is discouraging us, whether our own weak flesh is, is drawing us down, whether the world is attacking us, our justification is sitting at God's right hand, friends. Remember that, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Paul goes on to say in verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Same word as is used in Revelation 12, verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Romans eight thirty-eight: neither death nor life, nor angels, fallen angels like Satan, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our victor, our conqueror, and he makes us conquerors with him. And the mark that you truly belong to him, friends, is that you will remain faithful to that message and be eager to keep his commandments. That's what verse 17 says, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you're doing that, it will put a target on your back for the dragon to pursue you. But he is a defeated enemy. And our God will continue to nourish us and help us until the devil's time is up and Jesus returns and the dragon is destroyed forever. So friends, here's the original version of the story. The woman, the dragon and the child it's our story. It's our experience right now today. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are part of the church, more radiant than the sun, glorious like the woman in Revelation 12, verse 1. You are not what the devil accuses you of being, and you will not have to put up with his accusations forever. Because your Savior has come. He has shed his blood. He has ascended into heaven, and he is our righteousness. Is he your righteousness this evening? Do you love him? Do you belong to him? Or are you still what Satan made us all in the beginning in Eden? A rebel? Are you like Satan foolishly and pointlessly raging against God by continuing on in your sin? Stop your raging. Confess your sins. Believe in the Lamb conqueror the king because like satan your time is short and the king is coming soon amen